Welcome to episode 36 of Flying Podcast. During my visit to the Flying Show recently, I caught up with an organisation I've been wanting to base an episode on for quite a while. Uh, a listener, a guy called Michael Womersley Carter, had brought Skywatch Civil Air Patrol to my attention some time back, so I was keen to uh, interview them at the NEC. Tony Cowan is chairman of Skywatch and kindly agreed to spare half an hour to chat about the organisation and about his own personal aviation story. During his RAF career, he flew uh, Hercules and Nimrods in search and rescue roles. And following uh, his RAF service, he flew the uh, Britain-Norman Islander in the service of the UK police. And also flew the same aircraft for the Scottish Air Ambulance Service. In all, he's flown over 10,000 hours. And in his own words, 10,000 hours isn't a lot when compared with long-haul commercial flying. But when you've flown over 1,600 hours in the Chipmunk, the Bulldog and the Grob Tutor... Uh, they, those being the RAF's uh, elementary training aircraft, as well as operational tours on the Hercules and the Nimrod. It amounts to a lot of flights, a lot of aerobatics, and many thousands of takeoffs and landings. For the interview, there was a lot of uh, unavoidable background noise in the exhibition hall at the NEC, but I hope it won't spoil your enjoyment of listening to Tony's story. Hi, Tony, how are you? I'm very well, uh, very busy, as you know, and I'm. I can only apologise for keeping you waiting, but we've, um, we're running a very busy stand here at the, uh, at the, uh, the flying show today. Uh, firstly, what's your background in flying, Tony? Well, I, I guess like many people that are involved in aviation, uh, I started off uh, as an air cadet and uh, was very fortunate as an air cadet because they, they sent me off on what they called a flying scholarship, so I had a private pilot's licence before I had a driving licence, uh, which is not as, as unusual as you might imagine. And I've, I've met others in similar circumstances. But then, like many air cadets, I joined the Royal Air Force as air crew, uh, completed my pilot training and flew the large aircraft. I did a uh, tour on the Hercules, the C-130. And then I spent some 10 years flying the Nimrod. Uh, and then, like many officers in the Air Force, ended up flying desks, but, but then put some effort into flying air cadets. So I've been very fortunate to fly quite a lot of air cadets. I, been, I've just stopped doing that now because uh, there comes a point where you have to retire from the reserves and uh, I retired from the volunteer reserve earlier this year having flown air cadets for something like 20 years both in the regular air force and in the reserves and flew some delightful aircraft the Chipmunk of course and I was very fortunate to fly Chipmunks around the world in 1997 uh, as exercise uh, northern venture and then flew the Bulldog and then finished off my cadet flying on the Grob Tutor. Uh, and currently I fly to, uh, at a parachute centre up in County Durham and I fly the Cessna 182 and the Gibson Air Van. And next year we hope to take delivery of the Cessna Caravan. So, so I've been very, very fortunate to have spent a lifetime involved in aviation. Great. Uh, and now you're involved in Skywatch Civil Air Patrol. Can you tell me who or what is Skywatch? Well, the Civil Air Patrol uh, has taken a long time coming, and in fact, it, it started off ten years ago. And it's, it's in those in that period of time, it, it's changed its name a few times. It was, I think, it started off as a, before I was involved as a community air service, then became an auxiliary air service, and and then more recently we decided that um, Civil Air Patrol was a, a more descriptive term. Um, and it, in a, in a sense, it's a little bit like the U.S. Civil Air Patrol, although the U.S. Civil Air Patrol have been around a lot longer. They they were formed in 1941 to look for German submarines during the Second World War off the east coast of, uh, of the USA. And they celebrate their 70th anniversary next year 
uh, and we're celebrating our 10th anniversary. But in truth, um, in the last 12 months, we've reinvented ourselves into uh, quite a different organisation from the way we started out. And you've been quite instrumental in uh, remodelling? Well, yes. I mean, I, uh, we're, we're a registered charity and um, we will soon become a registered charity in Scotland as well. Um, and I, I was invited to join. It was, it was difficult for me because when I stopped uh, operation flying with the Air Force, or when I came out of the regular Air Force, I was flying for the police service. And I became a little bit involved in Skywatch when I was a police pilot. But there was sort of a conflict of interest there, so I really just offered advice. But when I retired from commercial aviation, from police aviation, and flying the Scottish Air Ambulance Service, I got more actively involved with the Civil Air Patrol in the United Kingdom and uh, was invited to become a trustee of the charity and at the moment I'm the chairman uh, and last year I was um, very fortunate to be sent off to the USA by the uh, Winston Churchill Trust, Memorial Trust uh, on what they call a travelling fellowship so I was uh, funded by Winston Churchill Trust to spend a month in the USA uh, picking up all the good ideas from the US Civil Air Patrol, from the US Coast Guard Auxiliary and from the uh, Department of Justice. Okay. And everyone that works for it is a volunteer? We're all volunteers. Uh, we're unpaid volunteers. Um, uh, we, we have, having said that, uh, we have quite a wide range of membership. Uh, many of our members, of course, are pilots uh, with a, a private pilot's license. Uh, some of them are actually are more qualified and have uh, commercial licenses. Uh, some of our members, of course, are retired, others are still in active employment, um, and some of them are flying for the commercial airlines. So we, we have quite a, a wide range of backgrounds. At the moment, all apart from one of our trustees have been in the Royal Air Force, so we have a strong military background. Uh, but, but you don't have to be a former military pilot to join. Okay. Uh, and what's the role of the uh, Civil Air Patrol? Well, I think it's captured in our motto, which is observe and report. Um, from my own experience as a, as a military pilot and as a police pilot and as an air ambulance pilot, I, I, I know how useful an aircraft can be. And uh, in its simplest form, as an air observation tool, it just simply adds value to what's going on on the ground. So if there's, uh, for example, a missing person, vulnerable people, um, if people are missing and need to be found, uh, aircraft can really add a huge amount of value to people that belong to mountain rescue teams or lowland rescue teams or even the police themselves. Um, if there's something such as flooding, um, you know, a picture does speak a thousand words, so in terms of flooding, uh, pictures taken from aircraft uh, are valued highly by the Environment Agency and by the people that are dealing with that particular disaster. And of course we're very fortunate now that, that although our aircraft might be fairly simple, the, uh, the, the equipment that's carried is very sophisticated. We have, most aircraft now have satellite navigation, so we have very precise navigation systems and um, we also use digital cameras which are very powerful themselves and and at the moment although we tend to send our pictures uh, once we've landed uh, as an attachment to an email for example we're looking at, uh, at how technically we think it's te we know it's technically possible to send those images directly from the aircraft to the ground mm -hmm. so air observation looking for and of course the people the sort of people that we're looking for uh, tend to be people that are not trying to hide and, and hopefully if there are people that are simply lost and uh, in some sort of dangerous situation 
in the uh, open areas of the United Kingdom, in Scotland, the Lake District or wherever, they, with a bit of luck they'll be wearing high visibility clothing so that they can be quite easily spotted from the air. And it saves a huge amount of time uh, finding somebody with an aircraft and then directing a search party to the precise location than completing the search simply with the ground party. Uh, so, I mean, we've been involved in exercises where a local mountain rescue team will set themselves up for an exercise which would perhaps last all day, looking for perhaps uh, six targets. And we've come along and found all six targets within 30 minutes. Yeah. Makes a big difference. So, how does a, a typical operation unfold? Well, typically, it's, uh, where we're very active is, uh, particularly active at the moment, is in Scotland, where... Uh, interestingly, Scotland is a, a big place, um, but there's only one police helicopter based at Glasgow, so uh, we work very closely with those police forces that don't have access to their own aircraft. And so a typical operation, if there's a person missing, will will start off with a call to the, the unit chief pilot from the police control room to say that would it be possible to uh, uh, get an aircraft airborne to look for a particular person, for example. That call could come directly from the police. It could initially be directed to the Aeronautical Rescue Coordination Centre, uh, which is run by the Air Force at RAF Kinloss. If they haven't got an aircraft immediately available, or if their own aircraft is already engaged in some other activity, they may then send that request for air assistance down to the local Civil Air Patrol unit. Okay. And in a lot of these things, it's, it's key that you get out there as soon as possible, that have this golden hour. Well, well there is such a thing as a golden hour, but, um, uh, and yes, indeed, but we're, we're not an emergency service as such, and we, uh, it, it's got to be understood that our members may be able to get airborne fairly quickly, but on the other hand, it depends on the time of day, or indeed the day of the week. They may be at work, for example. So if we were to get a call in the morning of a, of a particular day, and say it was Monday through Friday, it's possible that we'd get an aircraft airborne that afternoon. If the call came in late on an afternoon, particularly in the winter, when it's getting dark at about 4, 4.30, we might be looking at getting airborne first thing the next day yeah. uh, to uh, join in the search for perhaps a missing person. Uh, if it's something that can be anticipated, so if we realise that, that there's uh, flooding occurring, we'd probably be involved much more quickly because that can be forecast to a point. Um, if it's something to do with a large um, public event, for example, we were engaged in the Tall Ships Race. The Tall Ships Race this year uh, completed the race across the North Sea at Hartlepool uh, on the northeast coast just south of uh, Newcastle. And uh, on that occasion, we, we were working together with the uh, Durham County Council Civil Contingencies Unit, keeping an eye on the flow of traffic on the roads leading in and out of Hartlepool and, um, and again it was one of those activities which lends itself to air observation by a, sim by a, uh, a fairly simple aircraft and that's what we did. So you're not just land based, you're coastal as well? Uh, we're, we're a national organisation, we, uh, some of our units are, I mean we have units up at RAF Kinloss, we have uh, a unit near St Andrews in Scotland, we have units, we have a unit based at Edsfield which is in East Yorkshire. Um, we have units based. We have a unit based at Beckles in Suffolk. Um, another unit in Norfolk. Where uh, units are forming in uh, Cornwall, uh, down at Newquay. And um, I think quite soon we'll have uh, 
one, possibly two units formed in Cumbria as well. Okay. Uh, is it all GA fixed-wing aircraft you use? Not, no, no. It's 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 largely the sort of aircraft that you might expect people to fly, aircraft that they can afford to fly, because. As we all know, flying for the private pilot is not uh, an inexpensive activity. So we have a, a range of aircraft. Uh, most of our aircraft are single-engine aeroplanes. Uh, there's huge potential in some of the aircraft that you can see at the uh, at the flying show today. Things like the Icarus C-42, the Savannah, um, and another aircraft that are on show, the uh, Escobade, is another aircraft that springs to mind. But of course, uh, we sat fairly close to the. Uh, the, the gyrocopters, or autogyros as I think it should be called, and uh, I think Ken Wallace would say it's an autogyro, but uh, yeah. but others, I think gyrocopter is an American uh, uh, phrase. But anyway, it doesn't matter, we know what we're talking about. They're, they're excellent aircraft, um, and so they have a lot of potential as air observation aircraft. Superb uh, observation aircraft, aren't they really? Yes, we have, we, we actually have them. We have one, uh, we have a number in actual fact in our organisation. Uh, we certainly have one up at base at RAF Lossiemouth. Uh, in fact, it's kept in the same hangar as the seeking search and rescue helicopters. Yes. <laughs> and um, So that's another air observation tool. And we have one or two, but not many helicopters, because helicopters are in themselves quite expensive to operate. Yeah. And I think for air observation, most of what we need to do, we can do with light aeroplanes or, uh, or autogyros, uh, and, and possibly with helicopters if, if we thought that was uh, a best way of doing it. So we have a, a, what I'm saying, I suppose, is that we have quite a, a wide range of GA aircraft. Yeah. We do draw the line at, um, at hot air balloons, <laughs> uh, at um, gliders, and at um, powered parachutes. Right. Uh, can you tell me how many aircraft you, you can call on nationwide? Yeah, I, th I think nationwide. I mean, at the moment, we're running with about 250 members, and I suppose we have about 200 aircraft. And if someone was to go up, is it just a, a pilot, or do they always have an observer with them? Uh, we, we, we would encourage them to fly uh, with a pilot and an observer. What, what often happens is that the two pilots will fly together. Uh, one of them flying the aircraft, other, the other one acting as observer, and take turn and turn about. So they can, they can share the flying, they, they, they can share the, the, the observation work. Uh, but they, I suppose, importantly also, they can share the cost of flying the aircraft. Yeah. Uh, if someone has access to an aircraft, how would they go about getting involved in, in becoming a pilot for Skywatch? Right, first of all, they, they should uh, Google Skywatch or, or pick up a leaflet today at the show, um, find us. We're, we've got a good website. Um, we can probably give you the website address yeah, at the I'll end of the talk. Yeah, put a link on my own website. Um, you can provide a link, on, yes. Yep. Uh, so go to the website. Uh, we have a membership secretary who you could get in touch with. We have a general secretary who will offer you general information. And we're looking at, uh, as we sort of evolve, we, we anticipate that we'll be able to offer three forms of membership. There'll be those people that simply want to join as people that think it's a worthy cause because it's a registered charity. Uh, it's, it's aviation orientated. And if people have an interest in aviation and want to support this charity, they can simply join as members. Uh, then we might have people that have their own aircraft uh, who want to um, observe and report during their recreation flying but either haven't got the inclination or indeed the time to uh, be more operational because perhaps they're very busy people with busy jobs and they could join as supporters that uh, fly their own aircraft and agree that they will uh, observe and report during their recreation flying. 
and then we have operational units and so if you have an interest and you find there's an operational unit not too far away from where you live or indeed where you fly you could arrange to go and see the chief pilot and see if there's a vacancy on his unit uh, to join his unit uh, and fly operationally. Um, if, you, if you find there's sufficient people with interest in your area where there isn't an operational unit you could consider perhaps forming an operational unit. Uh, what we'd be looking for is a, a breadth of experience. We, there's a place for everybody. Uh, there's a place for inexperienced pilots to fly with and learn from more experienced pilots and there's a, certainly a place for experienced pilots to uh, bring their skills along which they've perhaps acquired from the Air Force or, or the Navy or the Army Air Corps for that matter or indeed they met uh, the flying instructors but we're, we're really we are looking for people that have got an aviation background that, that can actually are prepared to use those skills which they might have acquired over a lifetime for the good of the community. I think it's uh, what David Cameron would call the big society. Yeah. <laughs> and there are quite a few areas of the UK where you do need coverage at the moment. Yes, we are. We, 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 we don't have coverage throughout the UK. We, we tend to be uh, work we, where we've developed, developed fairly quickly, which is understandable, is, is where the police don't have their own aircraft. So the police are quick to spot uh, the opportunities, the, uh, the uh, possibilities of having some sort of air support where at the moment there is no air support so that probably explains why we're so popular in Scotland where there is only one police helicopter. Yeah. Um, we're pretty popular in, in Yorkshire where there is no dedicated police aircraft. Uh, Cumbria will come along fairly soon I think because again it's an area where there's uh, no police aircraft and uh, East Anglia is, is interestingly, uh, uh, we're very active in East Anglia where where under the, the new plan for police aviation they will reduce the number of helicopters from four down to two. So in a sense we, we believe that as part of, uh, of the, the, the United Kingdom uh, air support organization as a whole we will help to fill a vacuum which will we think be created by the reduction in numbers of police aircraft. I have to say that we're already listed as part of the UK search and rescue organization and if you get a hold of uh, what they call the UK search and rescue framework where it lists all those uh, organizations that are involved many of them voluntary such as the lifeboat service the night rescue teams you'll find that the Skywatch Civil Air Patrol is already listed as as an additional asset for uh, air search. Okay and if people can't actually volunteer to join or be active, they could actually support you by They could donating. join as members. They, you know, when, when we've looked at other models, when we've looked at the lifeboat service, I guess that many members of the lifeboat service uh, never expect to jump into a lifeboat. Uh, you'll find that many members live in places like Leeds, Sheffield. The, the lifeboat organisation is, is a very uh, good organisation uh, and they, they've been around for almost 200 years, so they've they've evolved and I think they provide a very good example for ourselves and so we'd be more than happy to uh, follow their example and, and have a wide range of members who support our charity because they have an interest in aviation. Much the same as you might find people that sail yachts or indeed uh, motorboats uh, join the lifeboat service because they have an interest in, uh, in activities at sea. Discussing the role of Skywatch, Tony went on to describe his flight around the world in 1997. He flew one of a, a couple of chipmunks from London via Russia and the USA, 
and a uh, Britain Norman Islander was flown in support, and a book, Chipmunks Around the World, was published to commemorate the event. Tony was awarded an MBE for his contribution to the flight, and his uh, personal aircraft, uh, WP962, is now in the RAF Museum at Hendon. Across Russia, uh, crossed into North America, uh, across the Bering Strait. Uh, interested across the international deadline, which is a bit strange actually, because we, I can remember vividly uh, that we left uh, um, Russia at uh, a small town called Providenia. Uh, we departed there on Friday the 12th of June 1997 and arrived in Nome, Alaska on Thursday the 11th, because we crossed the deadline. So the yeah. next day was Friday the 12th. and. Um, we were doing some work on the aircraft and we had an unserviceability and we thought, so we didn't fly that day. So we thought, you know, we're pushed out, look, you know, we've, we've already survived one Friday the 13th, you know, to try and try and survive two in a row, perhaps it's pushing it, so we had a day off. But then continued on across North America, uh, spent some time at Toronto where the first chipmunks were built in 1946, uh, before we carried on up to uh, north, up to Baffin Island and then cross to Greenland, Iceland, Faroes. And interestingly, you know, people imagine you're going to come west, but when you re-enter the United Kingdom, you're almost going south, yep. coming down from the Faroes. And we flew past Wick and landed at Kinloss, and then flew on down to the, uh, to the International Air Tattoo. We arrived just in time on the Friday uh, for the public days on the Saturday and Sunday. And that was, uh, and then I was, you know, somebody thought it was uh, a good thing to do, so I was awarded the MBE and uh, made a fellow of the Royal Institute of Navigation as well. Uh, thank goodness we had GPS. <laughs> we did, we did. And, and you know, it's, uh, I know you've got to be careful. And, uh, but when you, you know, the longest sea crossing we had was from Greenland to Iceland, which is 400 miles. And uh, there, there was no margin for error. We, uh, we could fly for about 500 miles. And, uh, but we, you know, this wasn't the place to get lost. Mm -hmm. And how else can you navigate? When you the climb? charts are not very informative up there. <laughs> it's all sea and sky. Yeah. So you you know you fly on on you know you take and the, and it's very comforting to have you know some and there was, we were flying as a pair so we had uh, GPS in both aircraft and uh, and just flew a straight line 400 miles from uh, just the two aircraft on the whole trip. No, we had a sport aircraft, we had to be an Islander, um, because the, the rules at the time, and they're probably the same in Russia, you have to have a Russian navigator, uh, but he doesn't have to be in the same aircraft, so, and there's no room in the chipmunks, because we'd uh, taken the back seat out and put a, an extra fuel tank in, which we needed to cross the, uh, the North Atlantic, even though we'd gone from island to island. So uh, Yuri, uh, Yuri Vostokhanov was a major in the, is, well, I don't know what he is now, but at that time he was a major in the Russian Air Force, and the, he came along as our navigator. We didn't actually need a navigator, but he was very handy as a sort of manager, if you like, uh, an interpreter. Because all, in Russia, English is their second language, but at, at where we were going, east of the Euros, once you, you know, there were very few people who spoke English, so it was very good to have Yuri on board. And we, uh, we took a, a technician with us as well, uh, who frankly didn't have a lot to do, but, uh, but you never know. So. Although I haven't said that, when we got to Nome in Alaska, um, we were using, uh, obviously we had to use the Russian version of Avgas. Uh, I can't remember, we used to call it green fuel because it had a green dye in it, B28 or something, I can't remember now. But, um, 
but it was, uh, it was quite a dirty fuel and I know that our engineer Dave Gill must have spent at least half a day cleaning all the spark plugs uh, you know the ones that we, I think it was something like 58 spark plugs he cleaned to because uh, you know you, you have to keep changing them because when we were in Russia we couldn't clean them and he found somebody at, at the at Nome at one of the uh, the operators had a a clean a machine to clean spark plugs and he spent half a day cleaning all the spark plugs um, but it was good he did you know it, it, so we had a, a good team and um, yeah the but we never what we the way we did we. It was a turbine islander, and the turbine islander was—it's a good aircraft, but its um, its best sort of cruising height was 10,000 feet. But our optimum height in the Chipmunks is 5,000 feet, and he was uh, his indicated airspeed would have been about 120, 130 knots, I guess. So his true airspeed was probably 10,000 feet. It was about 150 or whatever it was. But our optimum speed was sort of 90 knots at 5,000 feet. Uh, what you call full throttle height. So, so, so the way we, the technique we had was that, that the chipmunks would get airborne first, and whilst we were still in radio contact, uh, and so we'd been flying for about 30 minutes and everything was looking good, we'd say, right, we're, we're on route. And then the islander would take off and he would overtake, he'd be flying across the top of us, talking to each other, and he would, he'd be, and then overtake us and he'd, arrive and he'd be there wherever you all hopefully everything organized by the time we landed so he'd have the the fuel bows were organized you know the customs have been alerted everything that needs to be done and uh, so so we never flew the, the chipmunks would fly in a sort of loose formation and it, you know just going the same way the same day we never there's no point so we just saw in a sort of a very sort of loose echelon i suppose and then the and then the island that would fly independently and take off last and invariably arrived first. But we did fly a formation once. We did, uh, very fortunately, the Canadians arranged for us to fly over Niagara Falls when we were there at uh, Toronto. So we did a, a formation over over the falls. And they also provided the Cessna to take photographs. So we've got somewhere, there's a nice picture of the, the island and two chipmunks with Niagara Falls in the background. So that was, uh, that was interesting. Yes, it's... Uh, when was that? 1997. There is a book, Chipmunks Around the World. If you can get a copy, I'll sign it for you. But um, it was a limited edition that was produced by the RAF Benevolent Fund. They produced a thousand copies. And uh, and uh, if you find one, you occasionally see them in second-hand bookshops. And if you get one, let me know, and I'll, I'll be gladly Wonderful. write something in for you. Thank you. But there, there's, a, a, there's a thousand copies out there somewhere. Somewhere. <laughs> yeah. And I've got number one. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's quite interesting because at the, at, when, we, when it was all done, I said, look, uh, first of all, you know, I know there's a thousand copies, and, uh, but for those people that supported that expeditionary flight, uh, I think they deserve a, a copy each. Uh, and I suppose that, so that accounted for about 20 copies. And then I said I'd like four for every member of the team that went. And they said, yes, I mean, they said, that's, that's of course. Uh, but how did you work out four? And I said, well, I want one for my wife and one for each of my three daughters. <laughs> yeah, nice one. The arithmetic comes quite easy, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course, my wife, she's somewhere here. She's been very supportive over the years as, a, as an RAF wife, and now she supports me with the Civil Air Patrol as well. Yeah. So, yeah, so we're having a good time. Good team. For the final part of the interview, Tony discusses the future of Skywatch. Uh, with the potential privatisation of the UK's helicopter search and rescue role, he thinks that Skywatch will have uh, an ever-increasing part to play. 
It's it's volunteering is very British, I think. You know, there's so many voluntary organisations. As I say, the last couple of days, not yesterday, the Wednesday and Thursday, we were at the the emergency services show, and they had us with the, the other volunteers, with the lifeboat service, cave rescue, mountain rescue, lowland rescue. Yeah, it is very British, isn't it? It's, it's it amazing is. to think the RNLI keep going just on donations alone. There's no it's no amazing. But, you know, and they're very well, they've got the best lifeboats in the world, no doubt. Yep. And some of the best equipment and some really good people. And uh, if we, you know, over a period, it doesn't happen overnight, but, you know, over a period of time, if we can be half as good as they are, we'd be doing very well. And, uh, and I think it's the right time to be doing what we're doing, because with the changes in police aviation, the fact that we understand that search and rescue is going to be contracted out, uh, you know, having been in the Air Force and flying Nimrods, you know, I'm well aware of what our search and rescue helicopters are up to. Uh, there's a lot of that on television with things like Highland Rescue and other programs, and they do a really good job. But you know, the plan is that the that the search and rescue helicopters, which are provided by the, the RAF, the Royal Navy, and and the Coast Guard, that's all going to be contracted out. So I think that you know, when something goes, and I think you know, money's so short that. Whereas now and perhaps a few years ago that, you know, your local rescue helicopter would turn out on a Sunday morning to do a bit of training with the local mountain rescue team or the yeah. lifeboat. And there's no question of who's going to pay for it. But I think once things are contracted out, there will be a budget manager and he's going to say, of course we can spend an hour with you on a Sunday morning, but who's going to pay for it? Yeah. And I think there'll be a change. And I think that's where we may find ourselves become busier. Because when it comes to training and providing that sort of eye in the sky, uh, we could do that, you know, we can look for things, uh, we can talk to people, uh, and we can provide the same, that sort of, we can't do the rescue bit, but we can do the search bit. Yep. Yeah. So, we think that's how we'll evolve over the next few years. I hope so. I think it's a worthy cause, and I think that, uh, you know, and I think it adds interest to general aviation. I mean, people here, you know, those that can afford it could be spending a lot of money on an aircraft. I mean, for the aircraft out there, you would turn anything between 30, 50, 60, 70,000 pounds. Yep. I think those autogyros are talking about 60 or 70,000 pounds. That's a big investment to just go and buy bacon sandwiches. Yep. But if you can actually buy that aircraft, find through this sort of an organization that we can help you to pay for the running costs uh, and at the same time provide you with some interesting flying, that's got to be a good thing. It, it does give you a purpose to your flight, doesn't it, which is all too yeah, frequently yeah. missing, I think. I think a lot of people, they, they spend a lot of money and a lot of time and they, they get their licence and then it, then it goes a bit flat. Yep. So, well, what do we do now? Well, I think, you know, the guy with less than 100 hours, 50 hours, and he's got a PPL, uh, I think it would be foolish to expect those people to do what we do. But nevertheless, they could come along and, and join us and and either using their aircraft or perhaps flying in somebody else's aircraft, uh, develop their skills by flying with more experienced people who yep. will share the skills that they've got and uh, at the same time keep them out of trouble. Uh, so that, that's that's you know some of the value that we provide to to general aviation. So there you go. Okay, that's fine. Thank you very much, Tony. Thanks for your time. Tony Cowan of uh, Skywatch Civil Air Patrol there. For those of you who'd like more info about Skywatch, you can find their contact details on the Flying Podcast website. That's uh, www.flyingpodcast.co.uk, of course. 
I'm sure you'll agree that they are a very worthwhile organisation and deserve all the support we can offer. For someone with spare time and the availability of an aircraft, it would be uh, great to be able to fly with Skywatch, I think. It would certainly add some excitement to your flying and contribute to uh, David Cameron's big society, as Tony mentioned. Well, that's it for episode 36 of Flying Podcast. As usual, if you've uh, any comments, suggestions for future episodes, or if you'd like to take part, you can email me on steve at flyingpodcast.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Speak to you again soon.